So, Mr. Kyle, uh, what have you been doing all summer? I went looking for El Chupacabra, okay? That's that's research for a future episode, okay? That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, I got locked in a Guatemalan jail. I got married, man. I got married. You did. You I were. I was there. You sure were. You were my best man. So you you saw me uh, get married to the best person I've ever met. Yeah, man. Got a little lost in the hot back summer. Um. <laughs> At one point, so much time had just passed that we were like, let's just do a season two. Yeah. Welcome to season two, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to season two of I Mean It's Possible. We Yeah, like this is the second half of season one, but we're going to call it season two because it feels good to say we've produced two episodes, two seasons of a podcast. So it's it's the equivalent. We didn't plan on on episode no. 10 being the end of the season, but no. just life happens. Time passes. Yeah, man. And we live really far away. I think if sometime we were ever able to pull the curtain back and show people how we have to produce this podcast. I mean, this is the Millennium Falcon in Return of the Jedi. This thing's being held together with duct tape. Uh, it's, you know, we're doing the best we can. We're, we're like, we fly by night. We live in completely different areas. We've mentioned that before, which makes it physically difficult. Though we did see each other a ton this summer and make zero time to record in person, which also tells you a lot about us. We had an entire afternoon we could have, where I was just there. <laughs> we could have done like three episodes in person together. But you know what? No, we didn't. We ate cachapas. We watched Loki. We watched Loki. Oh, man. That was a good one. Yeah. That was a good day. You met my dog. Yeah. That was fun. You had never met you never met Bubby before. But hey, listen, it's season two. Are you ready? I think the question is, are you ready? Because we're starting off season two with your episode. We are. So um, do you want to know what you're going to... What you're gonna have to ask yourself about today? Are you ready to? Are you ready to admit something's possible? Because you're. I think you're gonna. I'm just gonna say that. I know it's cocky and it's a little arrogant, but are you ready? Do you want to know what it is? Yeah, I mean, I think we've got a pretty good track record so far of of convincing each other. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there haven't been a lot of times where we've. I think we're one and one through season one. We had each only said it's not possible one time. So if anyone was keeping score, we were each four and one through the first ten episodes. Well, everyone out there in podcast land, today we are going to find out if Mr. Anderson thinks it's possible that JFK was not, in fact, killed by justly Harvey Oswald, but was killed by, drumroll please, his Secret Service. Ooh, that's spicy. It's spicy. It's a little-known conspiracy theory, and um, I'm going to dive into it in a minute, but before I do, I'm wondering where you stand. What do you think happened? And tell me what you know. So I've seen the the footage, right? The videotapes. The Zapruder film. Yep. Yes. I have to imagine if you're watching that at the time, that was like. Yeah. Like that's the that's the equivalent of like, like they just recently did the 9-11 commemorations and everything where you see video of like on the street level type stuff. And it's like, it's a, it's a, a very intimate view of a tragedy as opposed to this far away view that, you know, you've got post tragedy. Yeah. Um, so I've seen, I've seen the film. Um, I mean, I've heard all the conspiracy theories of he did it alone. He didn't do it alone. The grassy knoll, the, you know, the magic bullet theory, the the famous Seinfeld episode with the magic loogie where they yep. parody yep. the magic bullet. That's a great reference. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like, I've got an under my, my understanding of it has always been, there's a, there's a puzzle with a hole in the middle. Right. And that's where I think the conspiracy theories for this come from. There's a puzzle that people have put together and they know that parts are missing and they they can see pretty much the whole picture. But there's just this one little piece that nobody's been able to really figure out. And so they come up with things like a magic bullet 
or a grassy knoll. And you know what I mean? And they start trying to plug in all these, all these other things into the piece. And I don't, I've never heard a conspiracy that's like fit. You know what I mean? That's like really truly made me go that, that right there is. I think I completely agree with you. And I would say that when I, for, for, again, for total honesty's sake, you know, this, I heard about this theory probably approaching 10 years ago from a comedian friend of mine. His name's Tom Dwyer. He's a comedian and a writer and an actor. He lives in Massachusetts. He's a great guy. And we were, at the time we were writing a a pilot for a, for a, a project Tom was working on. And I was, I was helping him sort of do some, some writing and, he had just in passing mentioned, you know, as sometimes things come up, right? The JFK assassination just came up. And he said, well, his Secret Service agent did it. And I said, what? Like, I'd heard all of them. Again, I was a history major, so was, by the way, so was Tom. We, we went back and forth, and he said, no, no, I have a book. And I said, oh, okay, you have a book, right? And, you know, he and I could go back and forth like that and joke around. And I said, oh, you got a book? What's the book? And again, at the time, I really, I had never believed a single conspiracy theory in my entire life. Almost every one of them just never really held any water. And he went to his bookshelf and he's kind of laughing and he brought out a book called Mortal Error. And he handed it to me and he said, just read it. You know, we were writing every week at that point. He said, you'll bring it back by next week. You'll be done with it. And I was like, okay, sure. You know, I took the book, went home read the first few pages. And um, let's just say a week later, I brought the book back and I said, yeah, man, I think that's actually what happened. And so that's what I'm going to try to convince you of today. Almost everything that I'm going to say is drawn from the book Mortal Error by Benar Menninger and an article that he wrote on Medium that is essentially a one-hour read. That's a kind of synopsis of the book. So if you don't want to read the whole book, you can look up Benar Menninger and read his Medium article, and it's the same thing. I mean, he's essentially rehashing the information with 20-plus years of extra info. The book was published in 1992. It is available for purchase everywhere. I make no money on it if you, if you buy it. I do not know the writer. I'm just saying if you want to go find out after this episode whether you agree with us or not, or me, or whatever, we'll see how Bobby feels. Um, so now, I'm going to make you the pitch. So... The pretty clear facts that almost everybody knows and everyone was given when they were children was that November 22nd, 1963, John Fitzgerald Kennedy is killed at Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, early morning. He's on a motorcade. He's shot. He's rushed to Parkland Memorial Hospital. He dies. He's flown back. There's the famous scene of his son saluting the coffin. A lot of this imagery, even if you're not particularly familiar with the assassination, is kind of iconography that's burned into the American consciousness, right? You had mentioned Back into the Left, which Seinfeld was doing a riff off of Oliver Stone's movie JFK, which drove into the American consciousness this idea that Kennedy's head had gone back and to the left, back and to the left. Kevin Costner, it's a very good movie, by the way. I'll say right now, not super accurate, but a lot of good movies aren't. But what it did was actually sow a lot of doubt in a new generation's mind about what people who had been alive in 1963 watched. And you had made a really fascinating little connection, Bobby, a minute ago where you said, like 9-11. And I think that's really well said because I think it's the millennial generation's 9-11. I mean, excuse me, it's the baby boomers' 9-11. It's their where were you. It's their what happened do you remember where? Do you remember when? A lot of them were young, but still, some of them were adults even by that point. And 
it's seared into their consciousness and it changed the American psyche. I mean, you saw the most powerful man in the world cut down, no matter how it happened. And everyone saw the images that night and it had a very strong resonant quality with the generation that watched it. Another thing that most people know is that someone named Lee Harvey Oswald is associated somehow with JFK's death, right? Most people, if they haven't super examined it, would think Lee Harvey Oswald is the killer. Some people think he's one of the killers. Some people think he's a patsy. Some people think he is the killer who's also a patsy. (laughs) There's a lot of like thoughts. You even mentioned the grassy knoll. There are these phrases from Kennedy's death that have become almost iconography in themselves. The Umbrella Man, the Zapruder film, Back into the Left, the Grassy Knoll. All these things that you say them to people, and if they know even a little of what you're talking about, it becomes this thing of like, oh, I kind of know, right? That was that's, that's the conspiracy theory, right? What I'm going to do today is lay out in pretty clear detail what I believe to be the thing you referred to, which is the hole at the center of the story. I do believe there's a reason why people can't let this thing go, even though they watched it happen right in front of their face. And I think the reason... It's twofold. One, because when you watch something that incredibly horrible, you can almost not even believe it can happen, especially to someone who's so powerful and rich and famous and handsome and young. And, oh God, he has all the protection in the world. If they can kill him, can't they kill me? I think part of your brain shuts off conceiving that anything other than a conspiracy could be, you know, at play. But then the other part, I think, is that you're watching things and your brain is doing math it doesn't even understand. It's a little bit like a basketball player. Basketball is really just geometry, right? They may not be great at geometry in a classroom, but they're some of the best mathematicians in the world because <laughs> they pick out angles no one can believe or understand, right? Your brain is doing a math it can't even name as it watches everything, and things aren't aligning entirely clearly. Now, that doesn't always mean there is something conspiratorial, but in this instance, I think what I'm going to end up telling you is going to feel a little bit like the thing that fills the hole. So, We are going to talk a little bit about what the book is, the central thesis of the book, and some of the supporting evidence. I will confess now, we do not have the time or the breath to cover the whole book. And so, if you are familiar with the book or familiar with the theory I'm referring to, things left out are not left out because they're not important. They're left out for brevity's sake and because people can only listen to the two of us, as amazing as we are, drone on for so long. If you feel like you want to know everything, you can go get the book or go read the article or do what you got to do. But here's a little brief synopsis of the background of the book and where we sort of start. So the book is the story of a man named Howard Donahue, okay? Howard Donahue participates in the writing of the book with the writer, Bernard Menninger. And Howard Donahue is a man born in 1922. He's an American. He lives until 1999. He's in his 40s when... Uh, Kennedy is killed. He'd served in World War II. He was uh, a distinguished airman. He had uh, seven flying medals, including the Distinguished Flying Cross. Uh, He was a war hero, a crack shot in the field, a ballistics expert. He owned a gun shop. He was known as a gun guy in a good way, in the old-fashioned way of like those old-fashioned early 20th century men. He was a hunter, a crack shot, a soldier. He understood his way around a gun. He, even at a young age, was known to um, modify guns and fix them for people who had guns that weren't shooting true, for scopes that weren't entirely accurate. Even you could give a gun to a childhood Howard and he would fix it and give it back to you. So he's a guy that understands ballistics on an almost sort of like 
other level, right? He's that kind of guy. And then in his mid midlife, he opens up a gun shop. He had been a salesman for a little while and he decides, geez, I love guns more than anything. Going to open up a gun shop. And participates in a lot of shooting demos and shooting demonstrations and then builds up this network of people that know him and are also crack shots and gunsmiths and stuff. That leads us to how Howard Donahue gets sucked into the JFK assassination. In 1967, four years after Kennedy is killed, because again, he's killed November 22nd, 1963. So four years later, Howard gets a call from an old hunting buddy who says, hey, what are you doing today? Howard says, nothing. He goes, you want to go shooting? And, you know, to some of us, that might seem like a strange thing to say, but to Howard, it was like, uh, it was like mother's milk. He's like, yes. So he grabs his stuff, heads out the door, gets picked up by his buddy, his buddy's brother, and another guy are in the car. And they drive out to um, an area in the Baltimore area known as the HP White Compound, which is sort of like a, a like a facility. And he doesn't really know what's going on. Howard's a little bit sort of like, hmm, what's happening here? But he's not like freaked out. He's with friends and he's about to go do something he loves, which is shoot guns. He gets brought down into the basement of a building and they're in a shooting range. The minute he sees the gun, he knows what he's there to do. Because again, there's very few things about guns, bullets, and ballistics that get by Howard. And he sees a Manlicker Carcano Italian rifle. And he immediately says to the guy, are we here to do what I think we're here to do? So for those who don't know, that gun is the gun that Lee Harvey Oswald is purported to have used to shoot John Kennedy. So it's a Manlicker Carcano model 3198 6.5 millimeter rifle. It was, for the first half of the 20th century, the Italian M16. It was their gun in the military that they all used. It's often referred to as a bad gun when people are talking about Oswald. It's more that it was a cheap gun that you could buy through the mail. But actually, a lot of soldiers in Europe had kind of relied and depended on it. So referring to it as a bad gun is not entirely accurate, though it definitely wasn't the Rolls-Royce of guns to be sure. Howard sees it and he knows exactly what he's doing there. And so they get familiar with it in the basement and he starts to look around. He realizes the lighting is low in the basement. There's holes in the target. And he's thinking to himself, you're not going to be able to judge how good I am with this gun in this setting. And the guy running the shooting demo says, don't worry, this is just the practice. And Howard's like, oh, okay. Uh, Where are we going? He goes upstairs. So they leave, they go outside onto an open like field and tarmac type area. And then he sees it. There's a 60 foot high scaffold built in front of what looks like a complete replica, at least in terms of dimensions of Dealey Plaza, which was where Kennedy was killed. And then it all comes into place. And he realizes they were only in the basement to familiarize themselves with the gun. It has a very specific bolt action, uh, unload and reload. You have to sort of empty the cartridge and reload the chamber It's got that famous push-pull thing of those old model rifles. So that's all they were down in that basement to do, was just learn about the gun. So now they climb a 60-foot scaffold, and they're told, we're going to roll a motorcade. It has a target on it. We want to see if you can hit it. They've got 11 of the best shooters in the Baltimore, Maryland area. Most of them can't do it. Howard can. Some of them kind of match Oswald's output, which was to hit the target at the time, what they believed to be two out of three shots in 5.6 seconds, which is the time that they were giving him to to have been able to do it. Howard not only gets the three shots off in the time, which tells him something very interesting, he also hits the target at a pretty accurate rate. 
So they leave the demonstration, and he finds out that that was actually for CBS News. They were participating in an official recreation of the shooting so that CBS News and Walter Cronkite, the voice of news in America, the man who famously reported to the world and to this country that Kennedy was dead, CBS was actually trying to figure out, because even as early as 67, as early as the days after Kennedy was dead, there was already questions about what the hell happened in Dallas. And so four years later, those questions hadn't been answered, and Cronkite and his team are actually trying to figure out what went down. So they actually commissioned this study, they did all this, they built this whole thing, and over a four-part series that summer, they actually release their findings, which is that they believe the Warren Commission, which we'll talk about in a minute, was largely accurate in depicting Oswald as the shooter. They don't name Howard Donahue specifically, but they do say that shooting was done that matched what seemed to happen in Dallas, and that gives us every reason to believe that the Warren Commission was telling the truth. So what is the Warren Commission? Have you ever heard of it? No. So the Warren Commission is the report issued by the government through an independent panel that was assembled by President Lyndon Johnson literally the week after Kennedy was killed. He puts together this team of very influential, high-powered men, including Supreme Court Justice Warren, who at the time did not think a Supreme Court justice should be participating in another branch of government's work, but his uh, patriotic strings were pulled, let's say, by Lyndon Johnson, who essentially strong-armed him into doing it. Also, Alan Dulles, who was the former head of the CIA, who was actually fired by Kennedy. Um, So interesting, he was on it. And some other senators and future President Gerald Ford. So some other guys and then some big names are on this Warren Commission. And they are tasked with You have an open budget, you can talk to anyone, you can look at anything, but when you're ready, you need to release a report that tells us exactly what happened. And next September, so September of 1964, they release an exhaustive thousands page long report that essentially says Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. He shot Kennedy from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository in Dealey Plaza. He killed him with two shots. He fired three total. We don't know where the other one went, but we know one went through Kennedy's neck and the third and final one blew off the front right portion of his skull and eventually proved fatal. That's what the essentially the bare bones of the Warren Commission. That's what they say. Everyone gets the report, reads it and goes, what? (laughs) There was immediate skepticism, confusion, frustration and a real lack of um, comfort from it. And almost immediately, conspiracy theories start. From that second till right now, the American public has never at any point been unified on what they think happened. A lot of people point to the Warren report from the Warren Commission being the reason. It will come up a lot in Howard Donahue's story. But for right now, that's mostly what you need to know. That it was a report, it was released, and it said in some total, Oswald acted alone and he killed Kennedy. So now back to Mr. Donahue. He's just participated in a recreation of the shooting. He comes away mostly believing what the Warren report had said because he had just used the gun. He thought, okay, I mean, it's not inconceivable that somebody could pull this off. I'm not saying I'm the best shot in the world, but I did it. And if I did it, I could see how someone with Marine sniper training, which is what we know Oswald had. That's a fact of historical of the historical record. You know, Lee Harvey Oswald was a Marine trained sniper, not a particularly great one, but even they are pretty good. So 
Donahue comes away thinking, all right, I think I, I think this kind of gave me the answers I needed, but I think I want to read the Warren report. I think I, he's now kind of interested because he's just gone ahead and been one of the major reasons why it's been confirmed by one of the three major news networks in America. And the preeminent voice of news, Walter Cronkite, has now gone out and told all Americans, trust the Warren report. And it's largely because men like Howard have just confirmed the shooting's possible. So now Howard's feeling a little bit kind of responsible for making sure he reads it. He also starts to get contacted by local newspapers because a lot of people found out he was participating in the recreation. His name gets out there a little bit. And he's asked to write some articles. And that further solidifies that he wants to read the Warren report because he says, if I'm going to write something about it, I should read it. This if we have a story, is the fork in the road. I can conceive of a world where if Howard never reads the Warren report, his life never happens the way it ends up playing out. But because he read it, and because we'll find out he is a man of exacting standards and exacting science, he's not able to ever really fully live with what the, re- the report said. Because it is filled and almost any side of the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theory agrees with this. It is filled to the brim with bad math. And yes, Bobby's laughing, everybody. Yes, that's where I'm going to get you, Bobby. It is filled with bad math. It's not just filled with bad math. It's filled with terrible math. It's filled with lazy math. It's filled with bizarre misunderstandings of physics, misunderstandings of the general nature of ballistics. And the problem is if you're Howard who's one, good at math, two, a crack shot, three, a gun owner, four, a war hero who's seen people die and who understands how things react to a bullet, including the human body. It's really hard to sell a guy like that a bad story. He's, he's not inclined to just buy bullshit or to buy well-intentioned mistakes, which I'm not saying the Warren Report was necessarily bullshit. I'm saying it very possibly was just bad work. Well-intentioned, but overall poor listen if you if you take a room of mathematicians they're great at math but there are real world applications you know there's a reason that just because i have a math degree they won't let me go build a bridge right because i don't have the engineering training so like yeah if you just pulled a random mathematician and and gave him some information he could probably put something together but if he's not a ballistics trained expert you know what i mean like there's there's more to it than just oh introductory physics inelastic and elastic collisions like that's not that's right i think you would have liked howard i have a suspicion you would have liked him a lot i feel like he would have liked you a lot actually interesting i read it many years ago but he reminds me of you in some ways which is that he's often described as a very nice guy very gregarious very calm has a good joke or two every now and then and he's just good at math like he's He's one of those guys that like can do his own taxes and like, you know, like he's an old school guy of the 20th century. He's, he's, he's a self-made dude. You know, his dad was a businessman, smart guy. His mother was in real estate, smart person. He, he's raised by people who, who taught him, you know, how to count. He, he's got a, got a good understanding of physics. He's got a good understanding of, of science and he's got a really good bullshit meter. And so he begins to make his way exhaustively through the Warren report. And this is where I'm going to start to highlight things so that we can tell the story, but there's a lot more meat between the ribs, so to speak, okay? So if people are like, where are we going with this? Know that you can go and find it all, but I just simply can't give it all to you. So essentially, what ends up happening is as he makes his way through the the Warren report, Howard begins to notice a couple really specific things. 
One, that it is possible to get off three shots in 5.6 seconds. Again, he'd created that himself. The first thing he discovers that kind of throws a wrench in the, the whole plan is that he studies photos of the day and specifically of the presidential limousine. And interestingly, Bobby, we're going to reference that back in the left right now. He realizes that Governor Connolly, the governor of Texas, who was seated ahead of Kennedy in the presidential limousine and who was hit by the, the throat shot, was not properly positioned by anybody who has ever talked about the Kennedy assassination. He's often placed, erroneously, as being directly in front of Kennedy. Now, for the people listening who have never watched the Zapruder film, and I almost can't believe that if you're older than about 15 or 16, it kind of just comes up at some point. But if you haven't seen it, it's an open cab limousine, an old school Cadillac limousine with no roof. Kennedy is seated seated in the back and to the right. So he's sitting in he's sitting in the back seat on the right-hand side with his arm kind of on the side of the car. His wife, First Lady Jackie Kennedy is seated to his left. They're the only two in the back seat. Seated ahead of him are Governor Connolly and his wife. Now like I said, erroneously, people almost always place Connolly directly in front of Kennedy. So sitting on the far side of the car. He's actually not He's seated slightly to Kennedy's left, more toward what would be the center of the car. And he's seated on a small little makeshift runner seat. He actually wasn't supposed to be sitting there. It's kind of, he was positioned that way. Uh, You might even think for photo op reasons, because half the photos, he'd be in Kennedy's way. He's a big guy, Connolly was 6'2", and had some heft to him. And his wife is seated to his left. This changes the magic bullet theory that you had mentioned, right? We always hear... This idea of Kennedy's moved the wrong way, and and there was this magic bullet theory that people always locked onto, which is how could a bullet go through Kennedy's neck and then turn and go back down to the right and hit Governor Connolly? Because Governor Connolly was hit by the second shot. So for those of you who don't know, when Kennedy's hit through the neck, the bullet actually goes and hits Connolly and goes through his ribs and lands, and he has a superficial wound on his wrist. People looked at the positioning and said, that means the bullet went through Kennedy's neck, stopped in midair, turned to the right, and went down into the governor, which gave people so many questions that they started to say, well, there must have been a second shooter. It must have come from a different angle. There's no possible way that could have hit the governor. It's actually simply down to the fact that he's always improperly positioned and poor cameras at the time give bad depth perception about where the governor is in relation to the president. He's actually, if you watch from certain angles, very clearly seated more centrally and to Kennedy's left. That clears up the path from Oswald down through the president to the governor. And it actually makes the single shot through the neck kind of possible. That's one of the first things that Howard realizes. He starts to immediately clear up the bad reporting by going, no, wait, 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 wait. He's not in the right position. So he repositions the car and starts to build models, right? He's that kind of guy. He, he's, he's in his basement, to be clear. Everyone should know. This all happens in a great American basement. And he repositions everybody and realizes, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so the magic bullet theory, throw it out. Actually, it's completely possible. The next thing he realizes is that something happened that people missed, which is that in the testimony about what happened that day, Secret Service agents actually said, the ones that were in Kennedy's car, they actually say, Kennedy said, my God, I'm hit. It gets lost in all the confusion of that day. One of the Secret Service agents who was positioned in Kennedy's car actually testified to the Warren Commission that he heard Kennedy say, my God, I'm hit. That would be 
impossible based on the reporting of the shooting as the Warren Commission reports it, which is that he's hit through the throat and he's hit in the head. Neither of those shots at any point allowed him to speak. The throat shot likely paralyzed him. It may have completely cut off his voice, but he's not speaking after that. So that means something happened to Kennedy other than the throat and the headshot. He's referring to something. And they pressed, the, the commission pressed the Secret Service agent on that. They said, are you sure he was saying that? And his response was, I'm not kidding. Sir, there was only one person in the back of that car that was from Boston. And they said, so you know his voice. He said, I'd worked with him for three years. I know his voice. He said, voices carry. And I heard a Boston accent say, my God, I'm hit. Now, I'm not going to do the, the accent we grew up around. But it, my God, I'm hit sounds a lot different coming from the people uh, who sound like who we grew up around. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Listen, if you, if you really want to hear that, travel to Boston, specifically South Boston. Travel to Southie and, uh, and pay someone 20 bucks to say that line. And you'll get everything you want out of somebody saying that line. Right. That piece of evidence is going to link up to something later, which is that in all the confusion of the autopsy, something very small is ignored, which is that there are tiny pieces of bullet shrapnel in Kennedy's skull, not in the wound from the headshot. It's a separate bullet, which tells Howard a shot missed and hit something that broke the jacket of the bullet apart and that a tiny shrapnel actually landed in Kennedy's skull. So what Howard starts to do is actually put together an understanding of the three shots, so to speak, and I'm doing air quotes, right? Because they say three shots, 5.6 seconds. Howard's trying to account for all of them. And what he ends up realizing is to Howard, eventually, he decides that actually, I think Oswald only took two shots. That's what Howard thinks. The writer of the book, Bernard Menninger, actually goes on many years later to say it's possible Oswald took three. But Howard works off of the theory that actually he only took two. The first one misses and hits the pavement behind the limousine and breaks. And a piece of that shrapnel hits Kennedy in the head. It's like a small little shrapnel burn. He reacts to it because it hurts, but he's a soldier. He thinks he's been shot. And he says, my God, I'm hit. At that point, he still has full auditory capabilities. He's not suffering from a lethal injury. It's just a little shrapnel, right? He would have survived that. It wouldn't have even really hurt him. But he felt it. It was like a burn. And the second shot Oswald fires goes through Kennedy's neck, likely is a killer blow, and then hits Connolly. More ballistic studying on Howard's part. He goes to the Library of Congress. He looks at the bullets from that day. He examines the bullet that's found on Governor Connolly at Parkland Memorial. They find a bullet on him. A lot of people look at that bullet and go, oh, it's pristine. How could that have been fired from a gun and gone through somebody? They weren't ballistics experts. Howard looks at it and realizes, actually, it's got groove marks from the barrel of the gun. It's slightly bent, and there's a little bit of lead leaking out of the bottom of the jacket. He thinks that's actually the bullet that hit Kennedy and Connolly. Something really interesting about that bullet, it was mostly intact. That's because it was fired inside of a full metal jacket. If you've ever heard that phrase, there's a movie, full metal jacket. So for people that don't know, a long time ago, bullets weren't constructed to be very nice to the people that they hit. <laughs> now, they kind of are in a weird way. The Geneva Convention requires that a bullet fired in war be encased in a full metal jacket so that it will not break up when it hits the body of the person that it, it's hit. This leads to more through-and-throughs, which are actually better for the person that's been shot because they don't break up on impact and shred inside the body and shred arteries and all kinds of stuff and leave shrapnel that can kill and poison you. 
So actually, if you're firing a bullet in a war, you should be firing a solid bullet that stays a solid bullet as it goes right through you. Kind of crazy fact, but it's true. Howard knows this. Howard understands bullets. Howard understands guns. So as he begins to make his way through Kennedy's autopsy, he's interested in the exit wound of the headshot because that is filled with shrapnel from a bullet. Inside of the skull and the brain matter and the tissue, included in the autopsy, is notes about tiny little fragments of a bullet that has broken up on impact and exploded inside the president's head. This is where many of us might miss the golden nugget, but Howard doesn't. He knows that means that bullet is different than the bullet that hit Kennedy's neck. Because if they're fired from the same gun and they hit the same target, one even goes through two bodies but doesn't break up, and the other one almost disintegrates. One was a hollow point light metal jacket, and one was a full metal jacket. That tells him he has two guns in Dealey Plaza that were fired that day. Now, for a lot of people out there, you may go, ah, the two-shooter theory, the three-shooter theory. We got it. He was lined up in a triangle. It was a mafia hit. That's not where Howard goes with it, because he's not actually interested in what the answer is. He's just interested in the science that leads him to an answer. That's the kind of guy he is. So he now knows what kind of gun he's looking for. He's not looking for another rifle. He's looking for a high-capacity automatic assault rifle, because that's the kind of gun that would have fired a light metal jacket hollow point round that would break up on impact. So our dedicated sleuth, he has what he's looking for. He just has to find it. Where do you think there might be a high-capacity assault rifle in Dealey Plaza the day the president was there? Howard's not dumb. If you had fired an assault rifle anywhere in that crowd, everyone would have known it. It's hard to describe exactly how displacing being near an assault rifle that's fired is. It's not, it's not even possible that anybody would have wondered where it was. If someone was in the crowd, if someone was on the hill and was firing an assault rifle, everyone would have known. There's only, in Howard's mind, one place that that gun could have been that nobody was looking at it funny. And that is, as he finds out in the Warren report, in the back of the car directly following Kennedy. Now again, according to the Warren report's own testimony, the Secret Service tells them, yes, there was an assault rifle in the back of the car directly following the president. It's always there. And they say, no joke, it was ready to go. Another fascinating thing for a gunsmith to find out about a gun. So now, Howard, he begins to make dowels uh, and drill holes in a fiberglass skull. He makes essentially a recreation of the skull. He puts a dowel through it, and he begins to look at the Zapruder film, and he figures out that the math on Kennedy's head and the tilting of his head at the moment he's hit by the killer headshot is wrong. He, 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 he's not working backwards from a hypothesis. He's got it. He's, he's like, it's almost like as you're reading the book, you can smell he's on the scent, but he's, he just keeps doing the diligence of the science. He works the tilting of the head to accurately reflect where Kennedy's arms and neck were, and his head is tilted down slightly after he's been struck through the throat. His arms come up. If you watch the video, which can be very difficult to watch, trigger warning for anybody who doesn't like blood or has seen violent things in their past, do not watch it. But if you have the stomach for it, or you've already seen it, when Kennedy's hit with a throat shot, his arms come up. It's actually, a lot of people think he's reaching for his throat. It's actually an autonomic reaction to the severing of, of his neck. His, he's, been, he's been likely incapacitated and killed. At that point, he's probably going to die from that wound. He's not dead yet, but his arms actually come up in an autonomic reaction. But it looks like he's reaching for something. His arms and shoulders come up and his head tilts down slightly. 
As Howard goes through the autopsy, he realizes the autopsy report incorrectly places the entry point of the headshot. They had said it was just above the little bump at the base of your skull, right above your neck. It's not. It's actually slightly higher. And the entry point is essentially like around the area above your right eye. So it's from right in the back of the right side of your head through the front of the right side of your forehead. He draws that model up. He makes a little dowel. He puts it through two holes he drills in the skull. He tilts it correctly. And he looks back to where the dowel is pointing. It's pointing right at the Secret Service limo. And he, he, he has his eureka moment where he goes, I'm looking for an assault rifle. And it's pointing me at the Secret Service limo, the only place I know an assault rifle was that day in Dealey Plaza. Okay, what would conceivably cause it to fire at the president? Well, how about the brake lights on the car ahead of it go off? When Kennedy is hit through the neck, there is a moment where you can see it on some of the footage, the brake lights on his car stop momentarily, just for a second. There's an imperceptible sort of traffic jam of the presidential limousines as something has happened and everyone in the car is reacting to what's happened to Kennedy and Connolly. They've been hit. There was a shot before that that everyone had heard. Everyone's on high alert, right? The driver pauses slightly, which causes the car behind him to have to slam on their brakes. They're only like a few feet away. If you actually look at it, it's not more than like, you know, a distance of a few bodies. If you someone breaks in front of you, no matter how slow they're going, that close, you have to break pretty quickly. So Howard begins to line up his series of events. He has a Secret Service agent with an automatic rifle in the back of the car. He starts to think about if I were a, a, a Secret Service agent and I heard a shot, because again, he thinks the first shot missed and struck Kennedy with a little shrapnel. Everyone heard that shot. You can actually see Secret Service agents before Kennedy's head is blown off. You can actually see them looking around in photos. They were actually turning. These are all trained soldiers that served in either World War II or Korea. These are, these are smart guys, people that have been in battle. They know what a gunshot sounds like in a crowded plaza like that where it echoes out. Even over the crowd and the noise and the motorcycles that were next to the motorcade, they hear that shot and they know. They start turning. They're turning to return fire. They're turning to look to the windows. People were leaning out of the windows. There's a lot of stuff going on. They're looking for the shooter. They already know what situation they're in. If you probably asked any of them after that first shot what's going on, they all know they just heard a gunshot. They're in enemy territory. This is the South. This is Dallas in the 60s. Kennedy's a liberal from Massachusetts. He won the presidency by the skin of his ass, and some might say by the coercion of his father. He is not well-loved in the South. He had to pick a vice president from Texas just to get over the line. He's in enemy territory. The Secret Service agents turn, and Howard begins to put together the thought, well, if I had an assault rifle at my feet and I was there to defend the president, would I pick it up? Especially if it's been labeled in testimony as ready to go. And she so starts to put together the scenario, if I picked it up, unlocked it, ready to shoot, maybe there's one already in the chamber, you know, here we go, and the car in front of me breaks, what's going to happen? Now, in Howard's estimation, the Secret Service agent falls backward and the gun fires and hits Kennedy. That's Howard's theory. But what actually strengthens that theory is a slight adjustment to it, which is that over the years, some missed testimony of bystanders says that they saw a Secret Service agent in plain clothes fall forward, which actually makes the firing of the gun toward Kennedy way likelier. 
Because actually, if he's falling back, he'd have to continue aiming forward as he falls. You can almost imagine he might tuck the gun, roll on it, drop it. If he falls forward, well, the gun's going to fall forward. And if his hands are still holding it, even if it's just a slight jerk, if you're in a car and someone breaks real quick, you just whoop, just like that. But you feel your whole body go. And so does everything that's in your hands. You might be saying to yourself, yeah, but why would a secret service agent that you just said is a trained military guy, why would he fire a gun randomly? Well, because the Colt AR-15, which was the gun that was in the back of the car, was notorious to an almost laughable degree for misfiring without having the trigger pulled. And there are thousands of accounts of young men that went to Vietnam carrying that gun who died on the battlefield trying to take it apart because it had jammed or misfired or was failing them. It was a notoriously tricky gun. In its first few iterations, it was not the clean, perfect machine of war that it is now. The AR-15, when it was first introduced, was a bit of a wild card. And it was also known by medics to be a gun that shredded the people that it hit. It did not leave much room for doubt. Now again, think of the entry wound to the neck, and think of the entry and exit wound to the head. Think of the difference in the jackets of the bullets that clearly behave differently, hitting the same body. Think of all of that. Howard starts to realize, I think Kennedy was purposefully shot by Oswald through the throat and accidentally shot in the head by his Secret Service detail as they tried to honorably defend him. And in the moment, just like in war, sometimes with friendly fire, something went wrong. And somebody who was only seated a few feet ahead of you and in direct line of the gun got hit. He puts together this basic case and he spends the next 25 years trying to get anybody to believe him. We're kind of rounding to the end of our version of this story because we've mostly delivered what the theory is. But before I ask you if it's possible, just a couple more notes about the Secret Service that day. I'm not going to name the Secret Service agent that Howard says fired the shot. I'm not going to do that because I want people to go find the information for themselves. He has long died. Howard's dead. Kennedy's dead. I don't think anybody in and of itself would be offended if I said his name. But the book makes the claim, and it does it in a much better way than I do. So if you want that name, go read the book. But what I will say is that the behavior of the Secret Service on that day, in the time after, and in the years and decades after, I think would fairly lead you to believe that something had happened that day that they weren't entirely proud of. And I think it's also fair to say that if you were a Secret Service agent who knew that Kennedy had been shot by an assassin who for whatever reason was there to try to kill him that day, and who likely did kill him, I think it, I think it would be fair for you to assume that we shouldn't then add more blame onto an honorable man who had made a mistake, who was there to try to do the right thing, and who didn't end up killing the president because the president was probably already dead. So... Actually, let's just let bygones be bygones, okay? It's just going to confuse people, infuriate them. They won't trust the Secret Service. It'll make everything seem like it was something that it wasn't. Let's blame the guy who actually came there to kill him that day, because that seems completely fair. And you can, from a certain perspective, understand the concept of that. Except, like you said at the beginning, the hole at the center of the thing isn't filled correctly, and people keep looking for an answer to the math problem they've done in their head that they arrive at the right answer without doing all the work. It's like when you were a math teacher, Bobby, and you, you got to show me your work, right? You can't just write the right answer. You got to show me how you got there. They're all trying to get there, but they know the answer is 89. They're like, I know it's 89, but I don't know how I got there. They've been hidden from the, the work. 
And I think I, as I read the book, I have to tell you folks, there's so much more information, anecdotal supporting evidence that makes this feel not just like an idea. It feels airtight by the time you're done with the book. Like, I don't know anyone who's read it or really researched it that hasn't come away almost completely convinced, except of course, anyone writing a literary review or, or something like that. Those people kind of really didn't take the book very seriously. It didn't really make a big splash when it came out. I think personally, when I read it, when I read it back recently in preparation for this, I was stunned by all the stuff I'd forgotten that anecdotally supported the theory. But essentially, Bobby, that's that's the that's the setup. And the finish is that the Secret Service carried themselves in a way after, both at Parkland Memorial, where they rushed Kennedy's body out, even though according to Dallas law, he should have had a full autopsy in Dallas. Anyone murdered in Dallas is not supposed to leave Dallas before they have an autopsy in Dallas. He was taken immediately to Bethesda, Maryland to have an autopsy done by the government. When the people in Dallas tried to stop the government from taking him, the Secret Service were the ones that said, we are taking him home to Washington and essentially through threat of force, remove the president's body, which is a little suspicious. Um, very recently, within the last few decades, when they were asked to release a bunch of documents by the Assassination Commission, which was a commission later established to try to get to the heart of all this, uh, they burned and destroyed all those documents. That's a record. That's on the record that the Secret Service did that. We don't know what those documents were, but they were destroyed. There are reports that a lot of the Secret Service had gone out and gotten drunk the night before and had actually left the gun with the Secret Service agent that's named in the book as the potential shooter, accidental shooter. By the way, he interestingly was 40 years old and had been personally appointed by Kennedy. He'd been given the, like, Kennedy had given a push to make sure to get him the job. Secret Service agents were only supposed to be 30 or under by the time they were hired. He was 40 when he was hired, which is an interesting little thing. There are some hints that maybe they have, may have even been, like, distant cousins. It's hard to know. Um, I only mention that because it's fascinating. But the behavior of the Secret Service was a little weird. The writer of this book and Howard Donahue tried many times to reach out to that Secret Service agent. He eventually ended up suing the book publisher. He received an out-of-court settlement. They did not admit any wrongdoing or culpability. As time has gone on, people have tried to attack this theory. They've almost never been able to bring up any evidence that actually undoes it. Some people have claimed they have uh, footage that shows that uh, the Secret Service agent in the car wasn't shooting or wasn't whatever. The footage never actually shows that. So, and one of the last things I'll say is that no matter why he was there, Oswald is there in the theory that Howard has, which I think is actually a really powerful point because one of the biggest issues I always had with the, the conspiracy theories around Kennedy until I heard this one was it felt really obvious that Oswald was there. It felt really clear to me that he probably had shot the president. And there was nothing that really ever explained what he was doing there other than saying, oh, he's a patsy or, oh, he was hired by the mafia or the Cubans or whatever. And you like try to like add it up and you're like, well, what evidence is there for that? Well, well, there's none, but he, you know, it's almost like people were trying to place him there because he was there. And this theory actually places him there for whatever reason you want. It doesn't try to explain his existence through some other covert government agency or whatever. It says for whatever reason he was there, he was there to kill Kennedy and he likely succeeded. He actually was probably the one that fired the shot that killed him. But the secret service agent shot, which is really the one that feels like the kill shot. Interestingly, it's the one that kind of 
takes your breath away as you watch it. That one fills the hole you referred to. And so we kind of come to that moment, that, that, that moment where I ask you, hey, Bobby, is it possible? Um, so let's just ask it. Bobby, is it possible that on November 22nd, 1963, Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated by a combination of a purposeful shot from Lee Harvey Oswald and an accidental shot fired by his own Secret Service team. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a very plausible explanation. Like that that right there feels like I mentioned like the puzzle piece that fits it. I feel like this conspiracy theory centered around not being told the whole truth. Right there, there are some conspiracy theories that we've that we've gone over that are based on misinformation and lies and bad science and all that sort of stuff. This one I feel like is based on being told, here's the picture, but there's a big hole in the middle of it. If they looked at it and said, well, that first shot through the neck was the kill shot. There's nothing to gain by throwing the Secret Service under the bus. There's just no reason that I can think of that why this wouldn't fit, like why this wouldn't be possible. Yeah, and... and if you read the book, anyone out there or you or whoever, you can make up your own assumptions, your own conclusions. I don't walk away definitively saying that I know what happened, but it's a little bit like a hypothesis in science until something else disproves it. This is the best scenario I've currently been given that uses all the information at my disposal and gives me something resembling a coherent line of like thought. Like I said, a big part of it for me is people have always tried to tell me, oh, Oswald X, Y, or Z, or there was someone on the knoll or whatever. No, I just need you to take all the pieces and tell me how they fit. And what Howard did was he went through with a fine-tooth comb over decades, right? He's not a sensationalist. He's not a fool. He's just a guy that understands guns. And he went into the, essentially, it's like, you can almost imagine him going into like a 3D model these days. Like you could see him like, like he walks into a 3D recreation and he's looking around and you can almost see it almost movie-like as he's sort of looking and seeing the paths of bullets and he understands where they have to come from based on how they behave and how they break up in the body and how they don't break up in the body and how that tells you different things about them. If you don't understand the composition of what you're trying to examine, then you're unlikely to understand it when it's put together fully. Howard happens to be specifically designed by life to be someone who understands a lot of what happened there that day. And I think that's what makes him a very interesting vessel for the story. He isn't somebody that is interested in other conspiracy theories. That's the other thing. He's like a kind of mainline Republican, like an old school, early 20th century Republican. He didn't vote for Kennedy. Like, like he's got like a real like sort of old stoicism to him. And when you read the book, you, his personality kind of comes through in, in the anecdotes and the, and the sort of... Um, the reminiscing that the that the book does a little bit about his story and his years. And I think as I read it, and as I think if other people read it, they'll come away with it. it it's exhaustive in its detail. It's exhaustive in its math. It's exhaustive in Howard's math that he over decades rechecks and rechecks. He goes on. It's really interesting, Bobby. After you said it's possible, one interesting thing, he goes on to get like criminology certificates from schools and stuff. He had for a, a little bit of time, he'd attended uh, medical 
school with the thought of being a doctor. He ended up becoming a salesman. He got a degree. He ends up like going back to school to kind of learn about forensics and stuff. Like you see like this old guy at night school who's just trying to pick up a certificate so that he can then credibly be seen as someone who knows what he's talking about, even though he already knows what he's talking about. And he goes to Washington. He tries to talk to senators. He actually makes a PowerPoint presentation or like an old school one where they had it on the overhead projector. He makes like a PowerPoint presentation to to senators and congressmen. He tries to be heard. He goes to Warren Commission uh, like um, like readouts and stuff as because the, there were still more congressional debates about what happened and stuff. He goes to those and he tries to sit there. He tries to be heard. He brings his like his little like uh, almost like a science project bulletin board with like his info and you can imagine people just brushing him off and thinking he's a crackpot, but he wasn't and. At least that's not what I take him to be as I read it. I, I don't see a sensationalist point of view. I see somebody who was doggedly interested in the truth and who got sucked into this because he was a good good crack shot with a gun, got pulled into this accidentally by CBS News, and then was like, yeah, I got to know what really happened. In 2013, there was a, a, a documentary about the theory called The Smoking Gun, which you can see online and on the Reels channel. It got a little bit of buzz. And then interestingly from that, a bunch of Australian police officers and then a former detective in separate ways essentially analyzed the ballistics and the logic of Howard's argument and come away convinced, like almost beyond the shadow of a doubt, that this is what happened. And it's because it's so sobering, exhaustive, mathematical, and without sensation or without sensationalism, excuse me. So if you're like a person that's inclined to look for the less sexy or less interesting answer... I actually think that's this one people joke pisses off both the lone gun nuts and the conspiracy theory nuts. It doesn't make anybody happy because it doesn't give anyone what they want, which is actually why I maybe because I'm a bit of a contrarian. I love it because it's like I actually think that might have been what happened. It's not fun. It's not cool. It's not weird and crazy, creepy, you know. You know, like JFK, the movie that Oliver Stone made where it's like this deep state conspiracy. No, it's an accident. It's a shitty accident on a horrible day to one of the most iconic men of the 20th century. And it goes back to that chaos theory of if it can happen to him, if he can be hit by friendly fire by his own bodyguards, Jesus, what could happen to me? And before I finish, you're getting one more anecdote, and it's the nail in the nail in the coffin. There is a story about Lyndon Johnson. It was by a biographer who was writing a book on him at the time that Johnson knew about. He was participating in the book, and the guy was there on a golf course with Johnson, this writer. And he's riding in the golf cart with Johnson, who, remember, was in Dallas that day. He was in the president, the vice presidential limousine a few cars back from Kennedy. Famous image of him on Air Force One with a bloodstained Jackie Kennedy as he's taking the oath of office, and she's next to him, fucking dazed, no idea what's going on. So he's on a golf course, and his biographer is zooming around in a golf cart with Lyndon Johnson, who is quite a character. And... As Johnson's driving and talking and talking and driving and just being Lyndon Johnson, the vice, the uh, Secret Service are actually following in another golf cart behind Johnson because that's their job, right? Everywhere the president goes for the rest of his life, these dudes have to have him in eyesight. And they're following him close. And he's zooming around the golf course. And he, he breaks hard, jumps out of the car and says, and this is in a biography, and this anecdote made no sense to anybody because you can't connect the dots unless you know Howard's theory. He said, if you keep following behind me, you're gonna get me you're gonna get my fucking head blown off. You keep following that close behind me, you're gonna get my fucking head blown off. It is so specific, it makes no sense 
out of context. It's just a, a random comment from a guy who clearly maybe just doesn't want to be, you know, playing a game of chicken with the, the security behind him. Like, get off my ass. I'm at a golf course. I'm the president. That's what it felt like to the writer. But that anecdote, when placed next to Howard's theory, becomes mind-numbingly clear <laughs> that Lyndon Johnson is actually literally afraid of the ramifications of those guys being too close on his ass. Not that he doesn't trust them, but that he's seen what can happen if they're too close. Like... It's insane. The little anecdotes of other people, like Jackie Kennedy had one. She was, by the way, a writer and editor of a magazine later in her life. Very smart woman. Went to finishing school. Very brilliant. Okay. Had that old school, like intelligence, read the classics. There's a quote from her. You should look up the way it's written in which she calls what happened that day an accident. She says two or three seconds difference, two or three inches difference, an accident. If you take out what I told you about Howard, how the fuck is what happened there an accident? It's an assassin going to kill, like, there's there's no accident there. But she, likely she and the Kennedy family, I would guess probably Bobby and Teddy and all the, the Kennedys probably knew that, yeah, your dad, uh, your brother, your husband, your uncle was killed that day by Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, but he was also accidentally hit by friendly fire from a Secret Service gun. Uh, it was completely fucking accidental and... It was just the worst, but you know what? It wasn't what killed him. His spinal column was likely severed. He was—he would have been a vegetable if he'd have survived. It's probably graceful that he didn't survive and live that horrible life. You know, not that that makes it any easier for them to hear, but guys, that thing you saw, that real violent end, it, it was an accident. It was horrible, but it's an accident. And then they have to take that, and what do they do with it? Come out to the world and shred the people that are going to protect them the rest of their life is bobby kennedy going to do that he's he was running for president until 1968 when he was assassinated so is he going to come out and dime out the guys that are about to cover his ass is he going to make them look bad is he going to make the guys protecting his sister-in-law and his children his brother's children who are now who are babies is he going to dime out the people protecting them what what value would the kennedy family have even if they knew the truth in telling anybody none so you can see why the secret keeps itself. Nobody benefits from anybody finding out because they all know, no matter who hired him, that fuck was up there. He did bring that gun and he did kill John. So why, why tear this other guy down? Well, because if you tell us the truth, one guy might suffer, one agency might suffer, and hundreds of millions of people might have real clarity about one of the most traumatizing things any of us ever sees that we almost all have to go through the rite of passage of being shown on the internet. And we'd all understand logically what had happened. And maybe there'd still be conspiracy theories. There likely would be. We can admit that. But that's the hole filled to me. Until someone else fills it better or has a video that shows that the Secret Service agent wasn't standing up or something. Like I said, it's a hypothesis, but it's currently the best one I've ever heard. It feels really complete. And I know you said you had to leave out a lot of the, the details, the anecdotes, the information, right? About 500 pages worth. Just from your explanation of it, it feels really complete. Feels like it's got a nice bow on it of like, oh, okay, all of this stuff leads logically from one point to the next. And so I can only imagine as you fill in more anecdotes and fill in more of the gaps that you didn't get to tell, yeah. that, the, that the story only becomes stronger. Yeah. Right. So what you're what the listeners are hearing right now is the weakest version of the story. Yeah. That you would that you can hear. So, I mean, I'm going to go read the book because now I'm interested in it. Here's what I'll say. We, we, we get some fun comments from people on Instagram and on uh, Apple 
um, podcast uh, comments and stuff where people talk about what they like and what they don't like. And it's actually helped us kind of understand how people hear the show. We often hear from people uh, their favorite episodes or the things they liked or whatever like that. I will ask them to politely hold off their opinion on whether or not this was delivered well or well enough to confirm it until they've read the book or at the very least watched the documentary, the Reels Channel documentary. But I don't think the Reels Channel documentary does quite the job the book does. I want to be really clear about that. I would actually, in order of what I think you should go look at, I think you should go to the book. I think after that, you should go to Benar Menninger's uh, Medium.com article because he was who wrote the book. And so he summarizes himself in a pretty long article, but it's much more concise than an entire novel. And then then the Reels Channel documentary, if you want. Not because it's not a good documentary. It's just because I, I just don't think it quite has the time in a two-hour documentary to do everything that a book does. So yeah, I encourage people to go out and look it up if they think it's interesting. And before they leave us a comment if they agree or not, I would love it if they go and try to check out the source material because um, I think it's pretty compelling. Starting off strong. You came out swinging with a win. I'm at season two. I'm, I'm actually kind of excited that we waited and that this was the start of season two, this episode, because I think it's a really fun way to start. Yeah. I mean, this is probably one of the most iconic conspiracy theories you could have. Like like when we were doing the draft, this was a this was a top pick. I mean, this is genuinely the one that kind of the first one in my life where I was ever like, oh, there might be an ulterior explanation than what I think is the conventionally held one. Conspiracies very rarely get solid evidence. How many times have we sat here and been like, there's just not enough meat on the bone? Like, we picked this thing clean and I could not come up with a single solidly scientific answer. And then you're over here saying, listen, there's too much, guys. Please please go look it up on your own because I can't possibly convey this much information. It has five appendix notes from the publisher. I mean, it's like almost 250 pages long, the book. And then there's almost a hundred pages of appendix because that's how sourced it is. So it's not like I'm like directing you towards like a Amazon self-published book by some quack. It was published by St. Martin's press. Like, so, you know, that's the start of season two. Hopefully we'll have episodes coming back out regularly. Yeah. And I mean, listen, we should actually give the real reason. So, you know, like I said, we got I got married. We're going to make our best effort to communicate the order of episodes and um and make sure that they are out in a more timely manner. We do appreciate everyone's patience. We get a lot of messages through Instagram with people that are like, "When are you coming back?" Um and we're totally honest with you. We're like, "Hey, we'll be back soon." Um so this is the start of season two for a reason, which is that we are sort of on a more regular schedule now. We're through our hot back summer. Um, we had our fun and uh, hopefully you did too and everyone's good. And yeah, we should be releasing in a more consistent pattern. Uh, and Season two will consist of the, the last 10 episodes from the draft. And then, I mean, season three, we'll start throwing sponsors at you and we'll get all rich about it. And stop, we'll stop doing our own it. research. We'll change. We'll have we'll have interns. Yeah, we'll have interns put yeah, together the papers. Yeah, we'll for hire us, interns. So. Yeah, that'd be fun. Uh, but yeah, so thanks for everyone sticking with us. Um, and like we always tell you, send it to your friends if you like it. Um, we're not the conspiracy theory podcast that'll make you look like a crackpot. Um, <laughs> so you know, Bobby, thanks for listening as I dragged you through um, the darkest day of 1963. <laughs> I mean, it it was despite being a very dark day. You were very illuminating. Thank you so much, sir. 
Uh, are you going to tip your hand about where we're going next week, or are you going to hold your cards close to your vest until until next time? I think I'm going to hold them close. I'm going to hold them close. Want to hold your cards? It's getting competitive. Until until another one of us drops an episode, it's going to be a little competitive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of gamesmanship. Um, but uh, thanks for listening. Welcome to Season 2. Tell all your friends. Remember, you can find us at possiblepod at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts or questions or concerns, you can find us at I Mean It's Possible on Instagram. That's your best social media bet. We are not on Facebook, even though Instagram owns Facebook owns Instagram. Um, and then find, you know, you've already found us if you're listening, so send it to your friends. They can listen on any podcast app they have. So until next time, Bobby. Signing off. <laughs>